The following message by Pastor Scott is brought to you by Together in Christ. If you all would join me in prayer before we begin tonight. Father, I love being reminded of things that often I can't remember on my own without singing music that is written and designed to stir my heart towards the things that love you and that glorify you, Lord. So I thank you for the gift of music. Thank you for Pastor Matt and how he leads us and guides us to your word through song. God, I truly do want tonight to be able to say that, that I want to live for you, you who love my soul. But I know that I would not be able to say that were it not for you giving life to my soul. Lord, I pray that tonight you would use your word in some powerful ways that I have to trust you for. And I pray that you would help me live by what I'm teaching tonight. Lord, help me depend on your spirit for this word. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to do that so that if you do choose to use this message in some way in someone's life tonight, it will be all to your glory, not to mine. So Lord, I do pray that you would be with us tonight through your spirit, through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter one. I don't know about you guys, but this has been a whirlwind of a week for me. Um, a couple of, uh, not exactly a week ago, a little more than a week ago, Thomas started looking a little groggy, a little pouty like this, but you know that something's wrong with Thomas when he stops eating his food. And, uh, and so we figured out that something was going on with Thomas, and you know, lo and behold, we take him to the doctor. Thomas has the flu. Sunday night, I start feeling kind of, you know, headache, a little drowsy. Next day, I go to the doctor, I get tested, I have the flu. A few days later, Nolan flu. So I've been out of it all week. You might be able to hear me a little bit. Uh, you know, it's still rasping my voice and things like that. And uh, I might cough a little bit, but I've come prepared with my water and my cough drops. So we should be okay tonight. Um, but uh, if you would be in prayer for me just silently there, if I go into a coughing fit, I'll be okay. Just take a break and I'll be back after a minute. But, uh, you know, I had the option to not preach tonight, but I didn't want to not preach because I've been hard-pressed to prepare for tonight and what I hope to bring to you. And uh, honestly, I don't always do it like this, but honestly, the reason is because there's been something that God has been bringing me back to over the last several weeks, you know, and that's really one of the great privileges and exciting things that will happen if you ever find yourself in a position where you are regularly teaching, whether it be Sunday school or lessons or helping out in like a prayer meeting or a small group or something like that, is that sometimes the way that God works it is that everything that you are studying, preparing for, getting ready, kind of brings you back to a central theme. And for the last several weeks, that's kind of been happening to me. And so I just, I'm trusting that God is doing something and that there's something that I need to share with you and that's why I'm praying that tonight would be a blessing to you. I don't know who it would be, but I'm trusting that the Spirit of God has been leading this. And so Mark chapter 1, the first eight verses, 
This is a study that we're starting to do in the youth on Wednesday nights, and I thought that it would be helpful to share with you what I shared with them this past Wednesday. We're going to read the first eight verses together. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Every gospel that we have, a gospel is one of the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Every one of them contain some length of story about a character that provides testimony to who the person of Jesus is. He's a pretty important character, and that's John the Baptist. And so each gospel will include a different level of detail about him, like Luke contains his backstory, like of his parents and all this other stuff. I preached on that several months ago uh, during our Advent season. Mark here only contains this you know, short little part about what he has to share. But the person of John the Baptist is a very important element of being able to identify who Jesus is. has to do with the fulfillment of prophecy, and there's really a lot that you could go into if you want to start thinking about who is the character of John the Baptist and why is he that important to the story of Jesus. So there's a lot of things that I could do with you And if you had come to the study on Wednesday night that I'm doing with the youth, that's really what we did. I mean, usually when you come to the character of John the Baptist, if you're teaching through one of the Gospels, is that you, I mean, he looks like to be be a pretty interesting character, right? And so you have this prophet coming out of the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord, you know, and that kind of, you know, gets your attention. If not that, what will get your attention is like what he's wearing, camel's hair, leather belt, he eats locusts and wild honey. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but that sounds like a pretty good snack for VBS this year. I think we could do that, you know. Any helpers? Any helpers? No? So he's a pretty interesting character, and that's usually the kind of details that people focus on when they get to a place in the gospel, at the beginning of a gospel, and they're thinking about who John is and his importance, and rightly so, because like I said, he's an important character. You, you should spend time doing that. But what I hope to do tonight is to not focus necessarily on who John is, but I want to focus on what John says about Jesus. And that's kind of how this little section, these eight verses, are split up. He starts off in verses 2, going all the way down through verse 6. This is who John is. This is the character of John the Baptist and his role and what he's playing, but then it transitions to verses 7 and 8 to what John has to say about Jesus. 
So what did John have to say about Jesus? Well, it starts in verse 7, like I said. He preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Again, that seems to be what we focus on when it comes to John the Baptist's testimony of who Jesus is. Several months ago, not several months ago, it kind of feels like it was several months ago, but at the beginning of January, the youth went on a Disciple Now trip to Camp Sela, and one of the, what we taught on a lot was John the Baptist as a figure, as an example of, of humility. And this is kind of what we look to. You know, John, I mean, it's a very humble thing to say that you're not even worthy to stoop down and untie the sandal of someone's feet. You know, you think of passages in Scripture where Jesus washes the disciples' feet and just what, what was associated with those who were considered worthy of working with people's feet, cleaning people's feet, undoing people's sandals. It was a very lowly task. John's saying, I'm not even, I'm not even high enough to do that. I mean, he's saying a lot, and that's a lot of humility, and we tend to focus on the humility of John. But again, that's focusing on John and who John is. I want to focus on who Jesus is and his greatness. And we see that, I think, in the next verse, the last verse, which is what I really want us to hone in on tonight. Chapter 1, verse 8. John's testimony about Jesus is this. I baptize you with water, but he, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The question I want to ask is why is that such a big deal? Why is that such good news? Why, of all the things that John could say about Jesus, and he did say a lot more about Jesus. This isn't the only account of John's testimony about Christ that we have. He did say more, but why, why, maybe, why, why did Mark include this as a prime detail to include about the person of who Jesus is and what he does for us? I hope that tonight we can walk away with a much better understanding of how big a deal it is that Jesus is the one that baptizes in the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons I feel like God has led me to talk about this tonight is like we talked about the Holy Spirit this morning and that wasn't done on purpose. I mean, this is just the day that I was scheduled to preach in the evening and this is what I wanted to preach on and it just so happened that we talked about the Holy Spirit this morning. We're talking about it today and so we've already seen some of the benefits of the Holy Spirit in our lives and why Jesus promised the Holy Spirit was coming. And so I'm, I'm pretty stoked that we get to look at this tonight. But the news that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit is big, big news in the whole story of Scripture. And so to understand why this is such big news, you really do need a, a broader understanding of the whole story of the Bible as a whole. And unfortunately, I know a lot of people, a lot of times when you would come to the Bible and you would read it, it, it can be a little disorienting. Has anybody ever experienced that? No? Great. Oh, yeah, okay, one person. That's awesome. The rest of you are Bible scholars. I don't know why you're up here, why you're not up here. But it can be a little disorienting. And I've known many people that I, when I talk to them about, hey, how often do you read the Bible? Do you read the Bible a lot? You know, what are your Bible reading habits? I mean, unfortunately, a lot of people, and this is okay, 
a lot of people will say, you know, I don't really read the Bible because I have a hard time understanding it. You know, I'll read it. doesn't make sense to me. It's kind of muddy. I don't get what this is talking about. Like, just imagine if you'd never read the Bible before and you open to Mark chapter one, and the first thing you read about is a guy named John that just shouts at people, prophecy, you know, that somebody great is coming and that this guy wears camel's hair and eat locusts. If that was the first thing I read in the Bible, I'd probably be like, I don't know if I want to read the Bible. Note if that happens to me. But people feel disoriented, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that, okay? There's, there could be many things, like if you're reading a translation that was written like 600-something years ago, that might be really hard for you to read if you're not used to that kind of language and stuff. But I think a really common reason is simply because people have a hard time understanding what they're reading because they get very little exposure to it, period, the more you're exposed to something, and the, the Bible is a book that if you read it more and more often, the more and more it's going to make sense to you. I'll try to explain this this way. We talked about this in the youth a couple Wednesdays ago when we were talking about this. Reading the Bible is like watching a TV show that is multiple seasons long. When you watch a TV show like that, a lot of times it'll get started really, really slow and you know, all you see at the very beginning for the first several episodes maybe are just a character here, a character over here, and they've got this story going on and this story going on, and it'll jump from one story to another story, and you're not exactly sure what these two people have going on or how they fit into the bigger picture of this, but if you watch the whole season, if you watch the show consistently, and if you watch the episodes in order what eventually becomes clear is that even though there are different characters and there's different stories that are happening, it all fits and flows into one big story that that show is about. And so it goes like this. If, if you have two different people, one of them who, you know, like some of you have your shows that you religiously watch. You have one person who watches a show every single week Every single episode, they don't miss an episode. They don't watch them out of order. But when that episode comes out, they watch it. But then you have another person, the episodes that they watch, they watch maybe one every three episodes. And then later on, they'll catch up on the rest of it, like, you know, as it comes on the internet or whatever like that. And they're able to watch it on Netflix or whatever like that, even though Netflix doesn't have anything good to watch anymore. Which of those people do you think is going to have a better understanding of the overarching story of the show? The one who's consistently watching, the one who's consistently engaging, not the one who's only looking sporadically and every now and again. The Bible's the same way. And so I say that and explain that just and take some time tonight to share that with you because if that, if you find yourself in that position where you come to the Bible and you say, look, I know I should read the Bible. I know it should make a lot of sense to me. Well, if it doesn't, I just want to encourage you, be consistent with it. Keep going, keep reading, because the more you read, the more will become clear. And really what you begin to see is that the Bible is not primarily just a tapestry of individual stories that don't relate to each other, but that there is actually an overarching story in Scripture that if you read and you pay attention long enough, you begin to see what that overarching story is. And you begin to see how this random story over here in 1 Samuel 
all of a sudden connects with this here in Daniel, which connects to here in Genesis, which now makes sense in the book of Acts. And you can just see that, wow, there is one, there's one thing happening here. And the promise of Jesus being the one that will baptize in the Holy Spirit is actually a pretty big deal in that story. Why, though? To understand, you have to start all the way back in the book of Exodus. You don't need to turn there. We're not going to read much in Exodus, but I just want to kind of walk you through a, a brief story that you get through if you start in Exodus and read through the Old Testament narrative. Most of us, when we think of Exodus, we think of God freeing his people miraculously from slavery in Egypt, and he, he brings them up, and they, they, there's all these 10 plagues, and then when you go, boom, like, you, know, whoosh, and the, you go through the Red Sea, you track in with me, all these sound effects and things, but you, know, you walk through the Red Sea, and now they're free, and this is amazing, but there's actually something really, really big that happens after that in Exodus. God's leading his people through the wilderness, and they come to Mount Sinai, and God calls Moses to go up onto Mount Sinai where God then enters into a covenant with his people. And the great thing about Exodus is not even necessarily that God has freed his people from slavery. That's only the first half. The first half of being freed from slavery in Egypt, the, the reason that's so great for God's people is because not only has he freed them, now on the mountain in this creation of a covenant, God's gonna create a way for him to dwell and to be with his people and for Israel to be the people of God and for God to be the God of Israel. And he provides a way for them to do that. In the giving of the covenant, he gives them the Ten Commandments, the laws that they have to follow, the festivals, the feasts, tells them how to work the tabernacle and the sacrificial system and all these things. This is the old covenant that they're given. And this is essentially how the people of God are supposed to relate to God, to where God can be in their presence. This is what has to happen. He, he lays it out clearly, gives them clear instructions on how to do it. And so this happens. And then immediately, as soon as Moses comes down from the mountain, do you remember what happens? He finds that the people of Israel are already breaking the covenant that Moses came to deliver to them. And he takes those tablets, he shatters them on the ground. Yep, God wants to destroy them. God wants to leave them in the wilderness and say, nope, I'm not gonna be your God anymore. You go, go ahead into the land. Moses says, no, we don't wanna go if you're not going with us. It's the presence of God in his people's lives that is what's so great about being his. What you find throughout the rest of the Old Testament narrative from that point on is a repeating pattern of God's people failing to keep the covenant and God showing mercy and forgiveness to his people. It is just a repeating pattern over and over and over all the way through the time of the judges, through the time of the kings until finally what ends up happening is the people of God have rebelled to the point and they've worshiped idols to the point where God says, enough is enough. I gave you this land as part of the covenant. You're not keeping the covenant. I'm taking the land away. 
and you're going to be sent back into exile, into slavery, and that's what happens. Israel is conquered by Babylon. They're taken into exile. They're taken out of the land that God gave to them, and now they're essentially back where they started in Egypt, back in slavery. God is not with them. I wonder how many of us, I know this is pretty descriptive of my story, of how I came to know the Lord, but I wonder how many, how many of you, that story reflects your experience in this world. A constant repeating pattern where you have a set of expectations of behaviors and attitudes and actions that you know you are supposed to fulfill to please God and your life is a pattern of meeting those expectations for a while, but then there's always some kind of catastrophic moral failure and you feel guilty, you feel oppressed, and you feel like there's, there's nothing that you can do until maybe some kind of grace enters your life, somebody encourages you, or you're finally able to work yourself and muster up a little bit more desire to keep going, to keep trudging on. But if your story is anything like my story, I don't know how all of you came to know the Lord, or maybe there's some of you here that don't know the Lord yet. I wonder if it's part of your story where you get to a point of absolute, utter desperation, where you know that there's absolutely nothing I can do. I have tried and tried and tried, and I've worked harder and I've worked harder and I've worked harder. But every single time I fall back again and again and again. God's people were sent into exile. The same way we eventually will come to a realization that I might as well be in exile with them. And we see that there's not actually a problem in this covenant that God made of how he can be the God of his people and we can be the people of God, that this is a, this is a situation that God created and we've, we, despite having an, an accurate and a clear list of ways that we can relate to God, there's something broken about the system and the way that the system is broken is us. There's something broken about us. There's something about us that makes it to where we can't do this way of, we can't do it this way. We can't work this system that God's given in this covenant. There's something about us that just won't work in that. And we need a different way. Even while God sent his people into exile in Babylon, he did not leave them without hope. There's a famous passage in the book of Jeremiah that talks about a new covenant that's coming. That even though God's people were sent into exile, God does not leave them without hope of what he will do to bring them out of this exile. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 34 Jeremiah's prophesying about the time when this new covenant would come. 
He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What a message of hope amid a hopeless situation to have the promises of God and the presence of God only to continually be reminded that you can't do it, that there's a problem in the system and the problem is you to be sent into exile, to be removed from the presence of God, to have a message of hope like that, that there is coming a day when we will be the people of God and when we will be in his presence and our iniquities and our sins will be remembered no more. That's the day of the new covenant that's coming. There are any number of facts that we, that we could explore about the new covenant you know, even today, like as we, as we celebrated the Lord's Supper together, when during the Last Supper, when Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, they were celebrating that. He even said, when he gave them the cup to drink, he said, this is the cup that is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. So there's, we even celebrated an aspect of the new covenant this morning, the new covenant in Christ's blood that covers over our sin but there is a definitive marker that's present for the new covenant as a reality in each and every single one of our lives. And it's truly remarkable because it solves the problem that we have under the old covenant. What's the problem with the old covenant? Why won't the old covenant work? Following the law, following rules. It's because there's something broken about us. And so if any system where we are going to be able to be the people of God living with God in perfect fellowship, something's got to happen to us. What's broken has got to be fixed. And that's exactly what's promised in the new covenant. The definitive marker that's a reality in the new covenant is the Holy Spirit's presence within us. There's another place that's talked about in the Old Testament in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. Go ahead and turn there. 36 verse 24. Ezekiel 36, 24. He's prophesying about this day of a new covenant when God will do what is needed to where we will be able to live in perfect fellowship with him. Verse 24, 
I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. So there's, there's the picture of, of a renewed covenant, of the idea of no longer being in exile, but now being back into the promised land of God. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. The reason that Israel was sent into exile is because they were bowing down to false idols. They were worshiping false idols instead of God. And here he says, I will get rid of all that. It will be gone. But here's where we get the really awesome news. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. What is This new great reality, at least one aspect of the new covenant that is so monumental, that is so life-changing for you and for me, it's this. It's that whereas we were broken before where it says that our hearts are hard, dead, and cold, that that will be changed. Your cold, dead heart will be removed and what it will be replaced with is a beating live heart. And what does it say? That God is the one that will cause us to walk in his statutes, that he is the one that will, be, that will lead us to be careful to obey his rules. The part of us that's broken, that's unable to fulfill the requirements of the old covenant will be done for us through the reality of the Holy Spirit being in our hearts. This is why Jesus says what he does in John chapter three when he's talking to Nicodemus. I'm sorry, I don't have that place marked in my Bible. I gotta turn there. When he's talking to Nicodemus, you might remember well what he says. There's, he says that something has to happen. Nicodemus, this has to happen to you if you are going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What is it? Verse three. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, listen to this, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This idea of being reborn or made renewed and and given a new heart, the word that you can use for that is, is called regeneration. It's where God takes something that is dead and regenerates it, makes it alive. I don't know how many of you, I know that there are some that have been watching a new show that came out called The Chosen. Has anybody here ever heard of that? Raise your hand if you've heard of that. Okay, if you've never heard of it, you should hear of it. And you should watch it. It's pretty good. We really like it. Watching it at our house. But there's one line that's kind of become famous that they share a lot. It's when Jesus interacts with Mary Magdalene 
And she's actually sharing her story to the character of Nicodemus in the story. And, and what she says to him is, all I know is that I was one way and now I'm a completely different way. And what happened in the middle is him. That's regeneration. That's being made alive in the new covenant. When you have your dead, cold heart removed and replaced with a heart of beating flesh. Under that old way of living, if you've been brought to that point of desperation like I was where you are done trying things, you are done working harder and you just don't know if anything that you do is gonna make any difference anymore because you know you're just gonna end up in the same place that you were. When you get to that point, that's when you just have to step back and say, God, you have got to do something. I don't know what has to be done, but I know that I am not capable of doing it. When a person gets to that point, they are primed and ready to hear the message of the gospel because that is exactly where you have to be to believe in the message of the gospel. Because what it is, what that message, the good news is, is that good, it's good that you know you can't do it because you can't. What you need is for someone else to do it for you. You are not a person that is struggling to stay afloat and need a lifeguard to come and help them out. You are a person that is dead in the water and needs someone to pull you out to revive you. That's what we need. And that's what the Holy Spirit coming in you and regenerating that heart, that's what that action is. That's what's so glorious about that. That's the good news. We would do well to look at the words that are recorded in Titus chapter three, starting in verses three, going through verse seven. This is talking about that same thing in verse three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Listen to this. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. How does God save us? How does he accomplish this work of bringing us into the new covenant? It says that he washes us. He regenerates us and he renews us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes we are afraid. We kind of talked about this a little bit this morning. Oftentimes we are afraid to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Christians and in the life of the church. And some of that is for good reason. It's because maybe you've experienced or you've seen or you've heard of people that can take the work of the Holy Spirit and only focus on that and, and throw this out, throw order out, throw God's word out. 
And we fear to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit and the role of the Spirit in our lives because we think that if you focus too much on the Holy Spirit, you'll start only pursuing spiritual experiences and emotions and feelings and that you'll you know, think that this is the Spirit moving, but all it is actually is indigestion or things like that. Or you, know, you, you see churches that you know, they're pursuing the Spirit and they're wanting the Spirit and they're, you know, they'll even use texts like Mark chapter one, verse eight, and they'll, they'll say that what you should seek is not atonement through the blood of Christ, but what you should seek is a second special baptism of the Holy Spirit where you have this special power from God. And so we see people led astray into things like that. And so we, we tend to neglect and ignore the Holy Spirit, but what we see here through these things is that the, the work of the Spirit is absolutely necessary, is absolutely crucial if the salvation that we have through the atonement of Christ is actually going to work because it is through the Spirit that we are given that makes us alive together with Christ and allows us to walk a life of obedience to Him. So back to Mark 1, 8. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What's so incredible about the news that this great one that's coming will baptize with the Holy Spirit? What John's saying here about Jesus is, look, my baptism is with water. And it is a symbolic baptism of cleansing of sin and of you repenting, turning away from sin and walking in righteousness. But you wanna know something? John's baptism is still a baptism of the old covenant. It is still a baptism where it is you trying to walk in righteousness and repenting from your sin and that being a way that you're pleasing God. But what he's saying, he's and pointing to the greater one that is to come, that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is this, look, I'm only baptizing you with water. And that's symbolic, it's important, it has its meaning, but listen to this. What you really need, you can get from the person that's coming after me. What you really need is to be changed on the inside to be cleansed on the inside, to be changed on the inside. And that is done through the power of the Spirit. And the one coming after me, he's the one that baptizes in the Holy Spirit. That's what you need. So that is the message of hope that John is giving. That's why it's such a big deal that this Jesus, the one that was prophesied about, what we looked at in, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, this, this age that will be ushered in of a new covenant when we no longer have to worry about pleasing God and living a certain way so that he will accept us. Jesus is going to bring that new glorious time of the new covenant. I just thought of a few things to try to make this a little concrete for you uh, as we end tonight. A couple points of application. I hope that you've been thinking the whole time about how you relate to God. Have you been trying to relate to God still under the terms of the old covenant? Under one where God's being pleased with you is based on your own performance, 
on how well you're able to follow the rules, cross your T's, dot your I's? Do you try to live your life to where you see God's approval as you as being basically like a report card of how well you've done? Does your life seem to be a consistent pattern of I'm doing good, doing good, bad, got to work my way back up to where I was and try to keep it up bad again? There's a new covenant. And there's a new way that you can have life through Christ and his sacrifice. Because what you need is not yet another turning away, I'm going to do better this time. What you need is to be made new. And he can do that through the power of his spirit. Second thing, if you're a Christian, you should not be surprised that dead people act dead. Let me explain a little bit. I talk all the time to parents, leaders, people that are, you know, you're going to your jobs every day, every week, and you come back and you have stories about how I can't, I can't understand why this terrible thing has happened. I can't understand why this terrible thing has happened. I can't understand why he acts like this or she says things like this. It's because they're, they're dead. Their hearts are like stones living within them. And you can't expect a dead person to act like they're alive. We can't expect the world who's lost to act like somebody that's found. I've said it before. If we want to start bringing in people from our community that don't know the Lord and we want to bring them in a place like this where we can try to introduce them to the Lord, we better be ready for them to act like dead people when they're here, to grumble, to do things that we're uncomfortable with, that we don't like, that we would discourage them from doing. As you're maybe talking to your kids, raising your children, I know we have several parents in here. You can't expect your unregenerate children to act like they've known the Lord for 20 years. I know that's a struggle for me to expect that of my own kids, sometimes to expect that of my own spouse. It takes us a while to grow. The work of sanctification takes time. But along those same lines, the next thing that I think is important for us to think about when you consider the work of the Holy Spirit and regeneration, you need to beware of a gospel of behavior modification. I've talked about this a little bit in the past, but I want to constantly bring it back to our minds because we very often go back to what I would call a gospel of behavior modification. If you're working with people, you have family members, you have friends, that are dead in their sins, they still have got a stony heart that God needs to make alive again. And you see opportunities of them living in their sin. It's very easy to encourage them to simply change the way they're acting and to try harder and to do more. This comes for us parents a lot with our kids where it's like what we want to see change in our kids is a change behavior and that might come across to them like as an example of, you know, they're doing something wrong and you say, look, God, God is not happy. God's not pleased when you do this. God's pleased when you do this. You know, that might be true, but we've gotta be very careful 
that we don't inadvertently teach children that what God wants you to do is act right. And that if you simply act right and you do good things, then God will be pleased with you. That's not the gospel. Because what our kids, even as young as three or four or five, what they still need, they need the same thing an adult needs is a new heart. And so you should constantly be pointing your kids to the fact that there's something inside of them that is broken that they are not gonna be able to fix by themselves. And if, if they want to live a life that will please God, then they actually need God's help to do that. Or maybe you're working with someone, so not a kid, but you know, an adult. You're working with someone at work and they're not a Christian and you know it, but you've been trying to share the gospel with them. You've been trying to reach them. And all of a sudden, one day, they, they're going through a hard time and they say to you, you know what? I know you've been talking to me a lot about church. I think I'm, I think I'm gonna try to go to church. I think, I think that would be good for me to try to go to church now. You know, in our place, it's really easy to say, you know what, that, that would be awesome, that would be great. Do you wanna come to church with me? And that's good and that has its place. But at the same time, God is no more pleased with that person because they go to church. And it's an opportunity for you not simply to leave it at, yeah, you should go to church, that would make God happy. But to take it a step further and say, you know what, it's, it's good that you wanna go to church. Let me tell you about what you're gonna hear if you go to church. Here's what you really need. You really need to be cleansed of your sin and to be given a new heart by God. It's an opportunity to share the actual gospel, to not just leave it at behavior modification. And the last thing that we should take away from this is to recognize that this is all the work of God. If God is the one that has the power to give us a new heart, then we've gotta be absolutely 100% dependent on him and his power, both in our lives as individual Christians and as a church. If we want God to grow this church, if we want God to, to reach this community, then we have to start focusing not so much on me and what I do and my power, but we've got to go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would work mightily by the power of his spirit. And we can't be afraid as a church of asking the spirit of God to take over what is happening in this church. It would be like a wild roller coaster ride to see the spirit of God move in a way that we can't understand and that we don't comprehend but to imagine what it would be like to be with God in prayer, to be used by God. So listen, if you got people that you know in your life that you're trying to see come to know the Lord, how often are you praying that God would do that work? Because it's ultimately God that does need to do that work. We've gotta be a people that are dependent on the spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we glory in this tonight in the news that the one that is to come and the one that has come is he who is able to baptize with the Holy Spirit. God, we often overlook that detail, that truth about Christ. But Lord, I pray that that would bring us such confidence, 
such assurance, such hope that you have cleansed us, that you have renewed us and regenerated our hearts, not by our own merits and righteousness, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that you have given us the Spirit as a seal of our salvation, as a constant companion. All the benefits that we could think of and talk about would take weeks, months, about what your Spirit can do. And God, we don't understand everything about the Spirit. And at times we fear to talk about and to emphasize the Spirit. But God, I pray that we would be a church that seeks the Spirit and that loves the Spirit and that lives in the power of the Spirit every single day. Because that is your power. That's how you work. We don't understand it. We're not meant to. But Lord, I pray that in some way, that from what we've looked at tonight, that your spirit would work in our hearts. Whether that be bringing someone to know you, regenerated, taking the heart of stone out and replacing it with the heart of flesh so that it now beats and that they can now join our chorus that says, lover of my soul, I want to live for you. Or if it be leading our church in a way that, that only you could be over. God, I just pray that you would work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Scott from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.com.